your host. I'm with a special guest uh, who's going to start off, start us off tonight in just a second, Patrick. Uh, but first, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we lift up uh, all things to the joy, the happiness, the humor, and uh, the seriousness, the things that come from our heart to you. We just pray you'll be with those who are seeking and uh, open them up to what you want them to know. And the things that are not right, we'll forget about. But the things that are, Lord, let them uh, plant, be planted deeply in our hearts. So be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we go to Patrick, tomorrow night, Brother Warren and I of Breaking Bread are going to be in Preston, Idaho, uh, 7 to 9-ish, uh, to meet and greet and even eat some food. Address, 532 East, 800 South Preston, Idaho. Uh, all are welcome. It's a home and of uh, Ruth and Brent, but it's going to be a time to sit. The most people who are coming, I think, have uh, an experience with Mormonism and or uh, Christianity. All are welcome. Again, that's tomorrow night, Wednesday, the 21st, nine, 7 to 9-ish. And the address uh, we'll give you again before we wrap it up. But, you know, we have next to me Patrick. He hasn't been on the show. Patrick comes to campus. He drives up here all the way from Provo with Larry. And uh, Patrick was, uh, he's from Bremerton, Washington, and at 13 years old, he converted to the LDS Church. Yes. And uh, was a member most of his adult life, 13 on up. He served a mission, Alberta, Canada mission. Yes. How'd you like that? It was the Alberta, Edmonton mission. So Alberta, Canada. Alberta, same Edmonton. Province. Same yeah. province. Yeah. And did you, was it French speaking? No. And how'd you like it? Uh, when I was a missionary, I loved it. I ate it up. I bet you did. I bet he was a great <laughs> missionary. But he has since to come to, know, come to know the Lord. And I've asked Patrick to not just only be here with us, but to give us a message. Because this guy, he's kind of like Warren. He's a preacher. Praise God. When it comes out, it comes out. So let her fly, brother. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Sean. You're welcome. Uh, Sean's a good friend of mine. I consider him a friend and brother. But see, when I was Mormon... This, this, if this makes sense, it was like, I always call it the hamster wheel of repentance or the hamster wheel of do, 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 do. And it's hard, it's burdensome. I'm not saying doing is bad, but when, when can you find the forgiveness? When can you find the peace that Christ promised? My, my, yoke is, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I was reading in uh, Romans chapter 5 the other day, actually yesterday. It says in verse 12, Wherefore, and this is King James Version for all you Mormons, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, that one man is Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now listen to this, LDS. For until the law, sin was in the world. Until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Mm. Praise God. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned. And then it goes on. It talks about Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now this is what I like. Then as, then as sin uh, hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now remember, in this chapter, in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1, this is what really got me and moved my spirit. Therefore, being justified, and more, I don't think Mormons understand what justification is. They, they, t they use the word, but they don't really understand. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith 
into his grace, when we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And, it t and there's a footnote that takes to Ephesians 2.18. Holy, th this is the best stuff ever. In Ephesians 2 uh, and 18, which I quote this to Mormons a lot, <coughs> excuse me, it says, for to, um, that's not right. That's, oh, it's 2 and 8, sorry, not 18. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it's by faith we're saved. Remember, it says Abraham's faith was imputed unto him. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for that. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> not of works, it says, lest any man should boast. Now, in what I've realized in Mormonism is they put the cart before the horse. A wooden cart can't pull a horse. It just sits there. <laughs> it's not alive. I mean, the molecules and stuff God created, but it's not alive. The horse is alive. It has uh, breath in its, in its lungs. But Paul says, By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourself. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace first. Then that, when we're saved by that grace, it empowers us to, to go and do those good works for God because we love Him, because we're thankful for Him, because we want to. Holy cow, I just can't get it out. I just love God so much. He's changed my life. And yeah. Mormonism is such a burden, and I'm not. If, you want to stay, if people want to stay Mormon, fine. But I'm just here to share the good news that it's Jesus and Him alone. It's not temple, it's not temple work, because you have to do your, uh, well, I won't say that. I'll be respectful. But you have to get your key signs and tokens to get the necessary to present them before the angels to get past in the center central to get before the Father. And that's what gets your exaltation. I tell the yes when I go and pro uh, uh, postulate at the temple on public property, obviously, although the security guards still come out at me. Uh, when, when I go there, that's my, uh, that's another topic I bring up is either you have that or you have Jesus Christ and what he did. You can't have both. You can't add to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's Jesus Christ and his finished work. So either he saves you completely or you have to have key signs and tokens added on so you can present them. It's well, interesting. it's very interesting. Praise God. And he's toned it down, but it was a beautiful message just from his heart by the Spirit. And it's a beautiful thing. This guy, he, when he's roaming around here in campus, suddenly you hear someone bellowing out songs, <laughs> just songs from nowhere. It's him. And sometimes he'll stand up and start preaching it at you, and it's him. But I think he has a calling uh, upon his life, his vocare from God, and it's to, to be in the Word and to preach. He has the guts. He wants to go out on the street. So you're reaching people, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to see when God takes somebody and just uses them. And so thanks for being on the show, brother. Hey, thanks, Sean. You're welcome. All right, let's jump to the board, and we're going to talk a little bit about the next box, and let's just talk about uh, what's on that board really quickly, because it's going to keep building. We have 12 boxes to cover, and this is our fourth. Just as a quick reiteration, you'll look, notice up here, this is the important box right here. This is the key. His victory. What, what uh, Patrick was talking about, what Christ has done. And we talked about how he's given us good news. 
and we've talked about how it's free to all and it, the result is gratitude. But religion says, ah, there's a little bit more than just the good news and the end result is bad news. So we see a switch between what he has given us when religion gets a hold of it and then it becomes something different. So then here, another thing from his victory is we are unburd the unburdening of our cares, our sins, our woes, our fears, all that stuff. And his yoke is easy, his burden is light. That's the described as, and the result is joy. You have joy in him, but when you get into religion, they start giving you assignments and demands and legalisms. And so the unburdening through religion becomes a burden again. That doesn't make any sense, right? And so then we came out a couple weeks ago, we talked about how his victory brings true humility in people who understand what he has done for them. And that he uses the weak things of the world, the despised things, the debased things, to confound the wise, right? And that the result of this is that the humble have true reliance upon God. They don't have reliance upon their own skills, their own, uh, that nothing that they can boast of, as Patrick brought up. They just have a reliance upon him. But religion, they start bringing in degrees and intellectualism and theologies and doctrine position and debates and pol political things. And the end is, result is pride. Well, tonight we're going to talk about something. And uh, apologies if you come to campus, because this is a reiteration of something we covered in campus. But... What else has his victory addressed that most of us, including myself, till about a month ago, get wrong? And it is the person of Satan. Now, he has had the victory. What does it mean relative to Satan? I was in the store yesterday buying some uh, groceries and... Um, a guy walked up and he knew me from Heart of the Matter and shook my hand and I said, how you doing? He says, oh, Satan is chasing me. He's on my back. He's getting me and I'm fighting him and boy, it's a battle and Satan and he talked about Satan for quite a bit, not knowing I was going to cover this tonight. What does it mean, Christ's victory relative to Satan? Now, um, You go to church almost anywhere today and you're going to hear that Satan and hell and everything have a very big role in the church. Uh, I have to admit that up until a month ago, I too have clung to the idea, I'm going to sit down, Wendy, that Satan is still in major operation, that he is still stealing uh, souls from God. He is still driving people into his lair of hell after this life. And, uh, and I've taught uh, that he Christ has had the victory, but Satan is still allowed to roam about and to um, tempt. I have said that. Pretty sure of it. I was also convinced that hell remained as an afterlife place for unbelievers and that it would ultimately give up its dead, because I based that off Revelation and the great white throne judgment. But this too has changed, and we're going to talk about hell next week. But what caused these changes in me? Well, I'm going to teach you something different tonight, and it's not going to be easy for most people. And uh, it's just going to be another feather in the cap of Sean McCraney's a heretic, probably. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to use scripture. You tell me what you think. Um, because that's what changed me. 
before I get to proving my, my present view of Satan here on the board, we discover yet another bastion of religious bondage making through the person, the identity of Satan. I want you to just think about this. Has Christ had the victory or not? Uh, and I've been guilty of this. So what about Jesus' victory? If we believe that he's had the victory through his life, his death, his ascension, his resurrection, what's up with Satan? Uh, is he still having an effect? Is he still roaming about? Is he still doing his, his deeds? Was he defeated or was he not? So tonight I implore you to try to see something very different for most people. Satan is done. I would strongly suggest from scripture, bye-bye fathead ha Satan, as the, as the Hebrews call him, and my daughters hate when I say. Uh, he has got nothing but life in the lake of fire. And I base this again off scripture. One reason I promote this is because if this is not the case, then Jesus' victory is still in question. He's still failing in a sense, okay? We ought to fear Satan if Jesus hasn't had the victory. But where there is fear, there can't be love. That's 1 John. See, that's what I believe religions do. They keep us on high alert of the enemy, Satan. And they use the Bible and all the things that it says about Satan in the Bible. I believe Satan is a real entity, a real being, to keep us on high alert, to keep us watching. And so they, they keep us talking about him. They keep us reading books about him. Uh, Hollywood keeps us watching films about him. Uh, stupid teenagers go out into the woods and burn candles to him. And, and instead of focusing on the king who's had the victory, we bring up the guy who has really nothing left. And I'm, that's what we'll talk about. So... When this is the result, fear is the end. The fear of Satan, the, the antithesis, the freedom, uh, which is fearlessness and liberation and a direct walk and talk with Jesus who's had the victory. So no focus or need to focus on Satan. So let me explain how these things changed about in the past month. And uh, sorry for the uh, redundancy for some of you, but I was teaching from the book of Acts and Milk. And uh, it was about uh, when the sons of, seven sons of Siva uh, believe that they could cast out demons in Jesus and Paul's name without having the authority to do it. And so they pretended to be exorcists. And uh, uh, demons had inhabited a man, and the man said to these seven sons, uh, Paul I know, and, and Jesus I know, and Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? And he beat the crud out of the seven sons, stripped their clothes off, and they ran out of the house naked. So I taught this from a biblical perspective and from the best of my ability and my background in religion, Mormonism and evangelicalism, and my prejudices and my views came out. This is how God seems to work in my life is a subject comes up, I have a certain view, I take that view, I stand by it, and then all sorts of things start to come in within, the, within that time period and they begin to make themselves known and they challenge and they correct my original assessment. Uh, and so sometimes this happens before I present things. Usually it happens after I present them. And so I wind up changing my mind and that forces me to recant and I'm embarrassed 
and I'm, I'm shown that I don't know uh, a heck of a lot, etc., etc. But I want you to know I don't recant things because of pressure ever. If Satan is real, if burning forever and eternity is real, uh, whatever it is, if it's real, I want it. I want the truth, but from Scripture. So, but when I experience an avalanche of information that says, wait a second, you need to look at this, that's when I start to pay attention. So the first rumblings of the avalanche hit after I taught about that seven sons of Siva uh, being beaten up by the demon-possessed man in milk. Because of this story in Acts, um, I made some statements from my opinion of biblical understanding. Some of those statements included that uh, the idea that demons certainly possess people today. And I said, if you don't believe it, come to my house some night and spend the night and you'll hear them. Now, uh, we live downtown Salt Lake City and we live at the corner of a place where literally hundreds of homeless people, most of them mentally ill, uh, congregate all throughout the night and they're howling and screaming and all profanities and it's very demonic sounding and so I said that. I also said that those who are not of Christ, who don't have him any, are in fact probably all demon possessed because they're of this world and until Christ comes in those demons somehow or another are having an effect upon their life. And I said, and this is a quote, of course we call demon possession psychosis, mental illness, epilepsy, but in the New Testament, it was all just called de demon possession, one and the same to me, end quote. Well, immediately after that service, I was met with the first of several confrontations that came to me within a few days and led to this change of mind. The first was from a sister who comes to campus at times, a devout Christian, loves the Lord, who was very upset. She was out in the parking lot. She is a confirmed schizophrenic. She's had a complete break with reality due to her schizophrenia. And automatically I was faced with the problem because here I have a woman in stand, in standing in front of me who I know personally who loves the Lord, her husband loves the Lord, but I was saying from the pulpit her ailment was from a demon possessing her. That's what I, and I use the Bible to support my views. And one of the painful things about this woman's experience is that when she had a psychotic break and she was in a mental hospital, a, a visitor friend came to her and witnessed her and reported back to interested parties that she saw, quote, Satan in a business suit. And so this sister, a friend of ours, a schizophrenic, confronted that lady after the psychotic break heard about what she had said and said to her, I am a schizophrenic. I am not demon possessed. Now you could say, well, how does she know, et cetera, et cetera. So initially I tried to justify my views to her. I tried to calm her down. I apologized. I said, Satan is the author of this world falling into sin. So sickness and death and emotional and psychological illness is the result of him. That's what I kind of meant. And I, I admitted to some mental illness of my own in uh, my past and certainly probably still in my present and uh, we parted ways. But her words opened my heart up that day and I started thinking, okay, I got, this is something that really troubles me. And I started to think about the topic of Satan and demons 
and the standards that we use in the Bible today to justify my views. A few days later, a brother from Arizona wrote me, Carlos, he text, actually texted me and he said, quote, All right, Sean, I'm feeling my oats. Don't smack down on me too hard, but I've just sent you an email on Satan and the preterist view. End quote. So the door was opened in my heart by my suffering sister, and I was intrigued. And I have long taught that while Satan has been rendered powerless, he still is able to tempt and he still is able to uh, possess people. So I reviewed Carlos's email and the passages therein, and I was forced to reconsider what I had thought. And if or since Jesus' words and the apostles are correct, if in what they said, he will come within a certain age and, uh, and not 2,000 years later, I had to reconsider, just reconsider, my teachings on Satan. After rereading the email and the biblical references, I sent Carlos a text that simply said, quote, I think you're right, and I can see my resistance to the notion coming out of my religious mindset established over the years. These thoughts have come at an increasing, at an interesting intersection of thoughts and circumstances for me this week is what I meant. Thank you, brother, for sharing. It has opened my eyes even more. This is me expressing what I was willing to believe now um, at that time, but I had not investigated so I wasn't sold on it, and I hadn't consulted the word contextually to see what was going on. So I had not moved into a new belief. It was just, hmm, this is, inter it is interesting. Three weeks earlier, we arranged to have a guest on our weekly show. His name was Glenn uh, Hill. His name is Glenn Hill. He's a Bible teacher, uh, pastor, 47 years, loves the word. He wrote a book called Christianity's Greatest Dilemma. And I drove Glenn around a bit before the show, and while driving him and talking, the subject of hell came up. And while I disagree with him on afterlife punishment of unbelievers, he and I differ on that, I do agree with his position that hell, a disputable topic, is over. It's done. He, he did believe that. Since demons and devils and Satan are associated with hell, I was more set to investigate the matter when someone in campus, across the room, I heard that in, uh, Satan is discussed uh, in, on the Preterist archives. So I took a mental note, and on Wednesday morning, I went to the archives, and I read it, and I began my biblical investigation, and that happened Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. I presented this at campus a few, about a month ago. So you take my schizophrenic sister's views, met with Carlos's text, met with my Preterist views, met with Pastor Glenn Hill's views, met with the article I read that I heard to read here in campus, and I stand before you not only to change what I've long taught, and I've even written about it in A to Z about Satan and, and everything, um, but I want to present a view that goes a long way in biblical understanding on the subject of Satan and uh, the topic of... Um, mental illness and emotional illness in the world today. So here we go. We've talked a lot about the second coming being spoken of by Jesus in the New Testament as happening within 40 years of his death and resurrection. And all of the apostles in their epistles concurring with this and that the book of Revelation plainly says to the seven churches in Asia Minor at least 10 times that he was coming quickly. You can't get around that phrase in the Greek. But what else is associated with the coming of Jesus besides the destruction of Jerusalem and the wrapping up of that age? Is there anything else that scripture talks about coming to an end? 
Whatever these things are, they should affect the way we read and see the New Testament and the way we live our Christian faith. Well, a big subject that's directly tied to his coming is Satan. And it's a difficult one because built right into the fabric of faith in God and good is the topic of evil and Satan. We often think of God, good, evil, Satan. We, we connect that. He's like the antithesis. Forgetting that he's not the author of evil. And we'll talk about that in a second. In other words, to most of us, including me not so long ago, where or if there is a God of light, there had to be a demon of dark. And, and that demon was Satan, and he's the one who reigns over the dark principalities. And as God is the author of salvation, Satan then is the author of damnation. And that, those are the mindsets that we walk through this Christian life with. And we cling to, cling to them, quite frankly, even if the Bible suggests otherwise, to let it go is really difficult. It's really hard. In fact, when I taught this on that Sunday, I was having a hard time believing uh, what I was teaching because I didn't really want to believe what the scripture was saying. Satan is not only huge to most Christian denoms, he has a thriving presence in the imagination of the secular world. And uh, to the point that, that people are said to, to worship and follow and sell their souls to him, and they're possessed by his minions. It's so interesting that he is so embedded in our thinking that people give him much, as much or more attention than we do to God. I mean, Hollywood gives far more attention to Satan than to God. Uh, and that was one of those people. So we have to appeal to what the good book says about Satan and believe it. What it says, not our traditions, not what we cling to or opinions, no matter how convenient they appear. So is Satan, the devil, Lucifer, which some people know him by, which is a wrong term. It's never applied to Satan in scripture. It's applied to a king. Is he still powerful and in operation today with his demons? What does the Bible say? Go back to Genesis 3.15. We read God saying to Satan in the King James Version, and I will put enmity, hatred, hostility between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, there are two bruises going on here in the King James Version. It, Jesus, will bruise his head, and Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. That's what it says in the King James. But in another translation, it reads in Genesis 3.15 like this. And there will be war between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. By him, meaning Christ, will your head be crushed. And by you, his foot will be wounded. Now, what would cause the translators of the BEE translation to change bruise, bruise to crushed and wounded? First of all, let's decide who's being discussed here. Uh, Satan is being addressed, so we know that he is one of the characters here that God is speaking to. He is gotten is the character God is speaking to. And by him will your head be crushed. That's what he says. And by you, Satan, his foot, Jesus, will be wounded or bruised. All Bible scholars admit that the by him here, all the way back in Genesis, is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. 
okay? That Jesus would crush Satan's head and Satan would bruise Jesus' heel. Did Satan crush Jesus' head? No. Did Jesus only bruise Satan's head? I don't think so, and I'll prove that through the scripture. Romans 16.20, Hebrews 2.14 support this interpretation that is given in Genesis through the BBE translation. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace, listen, will soon, in the Greek, it's not going to be long, crush Satan under your feet. Okay? Then Hebrews 2.14, speaking of Jesus, says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, ready? So that by his death, by his death, he might destroy him. Apulamai in the Greek, he's going to wipe out him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. By his death, he will destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Destroy him. 1 John 3.8 says, He who is doing the sin of the devil he is. Now remember, this is before Jesus returned, so the devil was still making war there with the saints in the biblical times. Because from the beginning, this devil does sin. Ready? For this was the Son of God, for this was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So Hebrews 2.14 says, his death he'll destroy Satan himself. And 1 John 3.8 says that he will destroy the works of the devil. That's why he took on flesh, it says. So then you go to Colossians 2.15, written post-death and resurrection of Jesus. It says in the past tense, having spoiled, talking about what Jesus did, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Okay? Taking these New Testament descriptions of what Jesus would do to Satan, by and through his victory, the BBE translators felt bruise to describe what Jesus would do to Satan's head was inferior, and they tied it instead to the New Testament translation of what Jesus would do to his head, which is crush, right? And that Satan would then bruise Jesus' heel through his death on the cross. So the question is, ask yourself, has Jesus crushed his head? And has he spoiled principalities and powers? Has he triumphed over them? Or is that warfare still going on? Has he not had that victory? Or has he had the victory, but yet the war still goes on and he still gets souls and captures them and possesses people and, and Jesus still uh, you know, has to be here or we need to have him in us so we can cast the demons out? Is that all still going on? Or did Jesus on the cross and in, by his death and resurrection overcome that and do with Satan what was necessary? Now, we know that Satan introduced death and disease and sin into the world through Adam. In fact, that's what Patrick just mentioned. He read the scripture. When did he accomplish this? When he got Adam to disobey God. So the first federal head of the human race, Adam, suffered a catastrophic loss to Satan, or the Satan as the Jews called him. 
all the way back in Genesis, in the face of this loss and all that it would entail, God promised that through the seed of Eve, one Jesus would come and through his death and resurrection, crush the head of Satan in the process, though his heel would be bruised. Now remember this, it's important. We might say for convenience sake that Satan authored, now this is just for discussion sake, Satan authored sin and death to the world or in the world through Adam. But we know that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, by his death and taking on the law and sin had the victory over what the first Adam brought into this world through listening to Satan. So there's that point. That's the first point I wanted to give you. Let's move on to Paul where we read the following about the relationship between the first Adam who he call, and who he calls the second Adam, Christ. Speaking of the resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man, Adam and his following Satan, came death, by man, Jesus, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Which scripture clearly establishes the time of when that would be. Listen, then comes the end when he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. All. That doesn't just include Satan. It especially means Satan. For he, Jesus, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that is not talking about physical death. We all physically die. That is talking about spiritual death. So the question we ask ourselves, has Christ's victory overcome spiritual death? That's the last enemy that would be destroyed. And, and Satan is the author of spiritual death. But here we are reading that he will have put down all the authority and all the powers and of that darkness. For Jesus would reign till he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Has this happened? Both in the, uh, has the physical death authored by Satan been overcome along with the spiritual death because of Jesus? Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, then the end will come when Jesus has put down all rule and all authority and power. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy 2.10. Scripture's coming up here if you don't have your scripture. Paul writes, but it has now been revealed that through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's that. Paul says that Jesus has destroyed death. Death is the final enemy. Death was authored by Satan. So, 
Then we turn to the book of Revelation. Written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Actual places, actual people, actual words of the revelation they believed in and looked to for guidance in these terrible times that they were facing. In Revelation 12, 12 we read, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down unto you. He is filled with fury, ready, because he knows his time is short. What does his time is short mean? Could it mean he knew his time was running out? His number was being called up? Could it mean in the futuristic sense short was 2,000 years from now? Well, time is in a time-space continuum they talk about. Time is an earthly thing. And therefore, if it tells him that time is short here, coming soon here, then it's to the uh, church, the seven churches in Revelation. They believed it was Satan's time was short. They believed in that day Satan was about to be over with and he was roaring because he knew it was about to end. The phrase, the time is short, cannot mean a long time away away, since time is an earthly construct. So if you look it up in uh, the Greek in scripture, you'll find that every situation where that phrase is used, time is short, in the Greek means short time. So Revelation told the believers back then, Satan knew his time is short. He, what would occur at the end of his time here on earth and how would this happen? First, it would happen when Jesus came and wrapped the end of that age up by his coming, as 1 Corinthians says. Then, when would this happen? Revelation 20.10 tells us. And the devil, who is leading them astray, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night to the ages of the ages. Okay? I would suggest to you, this might, you might not agree on this one, and I understand why, but I would suggest to you that is done. That that happened with Christ's victory over death, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, he has had. Okay? Now, add in that Revelation 20:14 says that death and Hades and Hades were also thrown into the lake of fire. And we're left with some serious challenges to the modern view that Christianity has of Satan today and hell today. But at this point, two good questions will come up and we'll wrap it up with this. First, who, what purpose did Satan play in New and Old, uh, old and New Testament times? From the Garden of Eden till the end of the age. And then what about now? What role? And then second, if Satan was cast into the lake of fire, how does all this evil continue to exist on the earth today? That's a big one. That's the one I couldn't believe. That's the one I'm like, there's no way. I mean, there's just too much. I know myself. I feel Satan in me sometimes when I want to do something horrible. And I know that presence is there. So how could this be true? Let's talk about the first two questions. What was the purpose of Satan in biblical times? Stay with me. I know this is heavy, but Satan, the word Satan, the author of sin and death, Satan means the accuser. Okay? That's the meaning of Satan. Right off the bat, without any explanation, if the law has been fulfilled, there's no accusation. 
there's no need for an accuser if the law is done. If the law's still in place, we have a need for an accuser. Just like if there's laws of the land, we have the need for policemen. Not to equate them with Satan, but that's pretty much what it is. You have a law, someone can accuse you of breaking it. This is huge. But let's use the Bible to see what I've said holds water. We'll start in the Old Testament book of Daniel 9.24, which speaking of the Messiah tells us what the Messiah would do when he came. Seventy-sevens are the symbolic weeks, and I'm not going to go into that from my views, are decreed for your people and your holy city, is what Daniel says. This is God talking to Daniel about those people and their holy city. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That is a prophetic passage talking about Christ and his advent coming to this earth. That's exactly what he did. And what does Daniel, God say through Daniel he did? He finished transgression. He put an end to sin. Now stay. The word for to put an end to is taman, and it means to completely destroy it. All right? Now I'm not going to go into... So Daniel, another point, Daniel prophesied to put an end to sin and to bring that the Messiah would bring in everlasting righteousness. Got that in place? So move out to the New Testament book of Hebrews with me where it says, but now I don't have the reference. I'm sorry. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifice of himself. To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. How is this possible? We see sin all around us, right? Did he really accomplish this? Turn with me to 1 John 3, 4 through 9. I want to put this into context, so we're going to read what it says in entirety. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so he might take away or remove our sins. And in him is no sin. So here we realize some things. Sin is to break the law. Sin is lawlessness. But he appeared to take away our sin. In him is no sin. How did he take away our sin? Not only those who have those sins we have committed, but the future committing of them, he took away the law. He removed the law. When you remove the law, there's no need for accusers because there's no laws to be accused of breaking. That's what we get through the victory of Christ. Remember, everyone who sins breaks the law. Doing this on our behalf, having the law nailed to his cross, John continues and says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning because you've gotten rid of the law. That's how it works. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. Dear children, do not anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. When you're born of God, you are dead to the law. Read what Paul says. Now hang with me and look at Romans 7, 7, 11. Okay? <laughs> Paul says, is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, don't covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the law, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, listen, this isn't in that passage, apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay? So, when the law is gone, sin is gone. No law, no sin. Romans 4.15 puts it plainly, saying, Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there's no transgression, there's because there's no law. If there's no law, there's no accuser for breaking the law. All right? Now, hang with me. Satan's name means the accuser. Satan can't accuse people. So when the law was fulfilled by Jesus, nailing it to the cross, Satan's role as the accuser was done for. We still preach, oh, he's up there. Well, you know, it's done. We, we, how could it be there if he's had the victory? You know, if the law is still important, then I see the need for the accuser. If the law is still in place, but if Christ is the law, if he's fulfilled the law and he's had the victory, I see no need. But that's just another idea. Remember when I asked you, what you remember, for convenience sake, we might say that Satan, whose name means accuser, authored sin and death to the world. Is there a relationship to the law and sin? I just proved there is. So in essence, Satan was needed when the law was in place to accuse and tempt and try people before God. Remove the law, remove the ability to accuse. Is there a relationship between law and death, which Satan is the author of, but Jesus overcame, remember? But death is overcome. Paul put it this way. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. If he's had the victory over death, he's had the victory over sin. And if he's had the victory over sin, he's had the victory over the law. And if he's had a victory over the law, he's had a victory over Satan. Bye-bye, fathead. Lake of fire. You're done. I beat you. You're over with. But no, we don't want to hear that. You see? Who was the accuser when the law was in place? Ha Satan. Satan, the devil. He was there. Remove the law, power gone. We might go so far to say that whenever the law is reintroduced, listen carefully, the ways of Satan crop back up. The ways of Satan. I don't think Satan himself. Those ways are really there, present with us anyway. So there's that. Paul makes it clear that we are dead to the law as it was nailed to the cross. The presence of the law is the equivalent of the presence of sin and the wages of sin is death. But with Jesus destroying the last enemy, which is death, the wages of sin are proven destroyed, and therefore the presence of the law, and therefore the place and position of the accuser before the throne of God done. I know I said that, but I'm reiterating it. 
For Paul, death is abolished when the state of sin and the law were abolished. The state of sin, the law, and consequently death are abolished when the old covenant is consummated, giving the new covenant age of life and righteousness. Did the second coming affect everyone, both the saved and the unsaved? Did the kingdom of God come only for a certain group of people or for everyone? Was judgment for everyone? Did the passing of the law and the destruction of death affect everyone? If we are living in the results of the promises made to the first century Christians, then the law, sin, death, Satan can no longer exist. Can't. And this plays directly into the way we approach living in the faith day today, which we'll cover in a minute before we wrap this up. But to the second question. If Satan was cast in the lake of fire, how does all this evil continue to exist here on earth? Now, I can give you, and I'll give you a few of my thoughts, but we have to use Scripture to tell us. And so I'm going to try to use what Scripture seems to say. Go back to the Garden of Eden when there was no fall. Go back to Genesis. Adam and Eve had direct and open communication with God by the Spirit. There was, it was a perfect place. And yet they had in them the ability to choose evil, to desire evil, to lust after the beauty of the fruit and to do wrong. Satan did not give, did not put that in them. It was in their nature. Satan just merely tempted them with their own nature to be driven by their own lust to then conceive and sin. In my estimation, their ability to do wrong was enhanced. The human ability to do wrong was enhanced by Satan and temptation. Uh, through the acquisition of knowledge. Remember, they may have been enticed and tempted by Satan in the garden, but they had within them that desire to be tempted in the first place. Listen to what James says. This is important. Go to James 1, 13, 15. This is how he describes it. And he, I think he is writing actually to the future. He says, let no man say when he is tempted... I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Listen, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. He says nothing about Satan there. Nothing at all. He gives us kind of a definition of how sin comes about. It's when we're drawn away of our own lust. Eve saw that the fruit was delicious to the taste, was nice to the eyes and very desirable. And she went after it because he tempted her. So Adam and Eve had their own desires and they pursued them. James concludes this is the case with us, excluding the person, fallen angel of Satan altogether. I believe strongly in the reality of personal responsibility before God. And Satan had his purpose and place under the law. But I don't think we can kid ourselves as a people. We are very capable using and appealing our own wicked imaginations to take the knowledge we have gained in this carnal world and live by the desires and enticements of our own flesh. And as the ages have rolled forward, we have proven ourselves capable of every kind of evil. And we can point and say Satan has been doing this. I would say men have been doing it. 
You know, we were made in God's image. I'm not sure Satan was. He was a fallen angel. Listen, think about this. Satan was a being that promoted darkness. Satan is not that darkness. God did not create Satan as the embodiment of darkness. He created him as an angel of light and that darkness tempted him and he fell. So that darkness, that absence of light, far more powerful than Satan ever was, does that exist? I think it does. I think that vacuity, the absence of God exists really well. But we are creations that we seek to blame. It's why we want to hang on to the existence of Satan. We don't want to have personal responsibilities for our own evil. I've talked to others, and this hasn't been a big deal for them. They've been like, yeah, I've never really been that big on that whole idea. Uh, I, I have been because I believe what the Bible has to say about him, but I didn't see it in context of what uh, Scripture says. So the reality is we choose life or death, uh, and uh, we choose things that embody God, or we choose things that embody darkness. And, 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 and not it's not a God and Satan war. They're not in the same universe. So the final point, and we'll wrap it up. All these conclusions will go a long way in Christians today taking responsibility in the care and consideration of others who are mentally and emotionally ill. Instead of me looking out my window at night and saying those demons are just really getting them tonight because they do seem like they fit the demonic description. They're gnashing and they're swearing and you know, they're fulfilling the role of uh, the exorcist. Their heads are spinning around. And you're like, this is just unbelievably demonic. But in reality, uh, you know, they seem to be uh, uh, victims of their genetic nature, their nurture, disease, deficiencies, and often choices, personal choices, drug abuse, things like that. We'll do that to anybody. So this understanding will open us up to embracing viable God-given treatments and ailments and removing them from the spiritual realms which Jesus has had the victory over. I'm not saying we don't say prayers and that we don't you know, share Christian love and sharing Christ don't go a long way in treating the suffering. And the, I mean, they, they do. He does. He is the light. He's the healer. But I just don't think our war is with uh, Satan anymore. Our war might be with the darkness and the apathy that Satan bought into when he fell, but I don't think the person Satan has any uh, bearing anymore. I think the problem is us. I think that's where it lies. So uh, with that, let's take one quick look at this and just let you know if you have Apple Music, all this music is available on Apple Music. According to Larry, take a look.
could um, record it in my photo booth so I don't forget it. For you Tomorrow night, Warren Puckett and myself and Suzanne will be in Preston, Idaho, 7 to 9-ish, to meet and greet. Address three, uh, 532 East, 800 South, Preston, Idaho. All are welcome. We'll see you either there or we'll see you here on Heart of the Matter next week. God bless. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 